Welcome to another American Bankruptcy Institute podcast. I'm Sam Giordano, ABI Executive Director. America's long housing nightmare continues. Foreclosures continue to rise, home values continue to fall, and government programs to address the problem continue to overpromise and underdeliver. The just passed financial regulatory overhaul contains over 2,000 pages of text and promises hundreds of new rulemakings to come. But there's no solution for what to do about the toxic twins, Fannie and Freddie, who helped cause the meltdown. The mortgage business, originators, servicers, and others, are about to experience a new regime of regulation and oversight by the new Consumer Financial Protection Board. With me to talk about what's next is Gibran Nicholas, the founder, chairman, and CEO of Certified Mortgage Planning Specialist Institute, based in Ann Arbor, Michigan. The CMPS Institute is a training, examination, and certification program for mortgage professionals. The focus of CMPS is to protect consumers by empowering mortgage and financial professionals to make suitable mortgage and real estate recommendations. Since 2005, the Institute has trained more than 5,000 mortgage professionals. Mr. Nicholas regularly writes and speaks on mortgage and other financial services issues, uh, welcome, Mr. Nicholas, to ABI Podcast. Well, thanks for uh, having me, Sam. I really appreciate the opportunity. Last uh, last month, you issued a bit of a warning about the new financial reform law and its possible effects on homeowners and buyers. What does the new law mean for mortgage rates and the ability to qualify for a good mortgage, do you think? Well, I think that there are going to be a few adverse effects that the housing market is going to see from the, from the new financial reform law. First of all, I think it's going to be more difficult to qualify for a mortgage in the future based on some of the language in the, in the bill. And, and basically what happens, Sam, is, is during times of economic expansion, lenders tend to loosen their guidelines during times of um, economic recession, we see lenders tightening their guidelines. So there's a flexibility in terms of changing the guidelines based on the economic conditions, based on housing market conditions, economic conditions, and so forth. But now what we're seeing is some of these guidelines are actually going to be written in stone, removing the flexibility of lenders to change the guidelines as the economy changes. And so that's why we think this is negatively going to impact the housing market, because some of these rules are now going to be set in stone in terms of some of the qualification requirements for mortgages. Um, for example, you know, you have homeowners today who are having a hard time getting a loan, even though their credit scores may be very high. Um, they may be a self-employed individual with, with high credit scores, a lot of money in the bank, a lot of equity in the home, but maybe their business took a hit last year in terms of the income that the business was able to generate. Well, they're having a very difficult time qualifying for a mortgage because some of the more flexible uh, mortgage programs have pretty much gone away. Well, now that's going to be permanent, and the, uh, so some of the more flex flexible loan programs of the past are not likely to return because some of these guidelines are now set in stone in, in, in terms of being, being written into the law. Well, uh, weren't some of those 
flexible loan programs uh, part of the problem? Isn't this new law simply reacting to the uh, excesses of the market, or is it an overreaction? Well, I think it's an overreaction. It's kind of like you know beating a dead horse. <laughs> when, when you think about it, the, the market's pretty much already corrected. It, it, you can't get a subprime mortgage today. You can't right. get a, a, a no documentation loan if your credit score is five fifty. You can hardly even you can't even get a no documentation loan if your credit score is eight hundred. So, some of the excesses of the past have been corrected by the market in terms of you. Wall Street is not securitizing these types of loans anymore, so bankers don't have an outlet to, to sell them on the secondary market, so therefore they can't offer them to consumers. And so rather than um, you know, letting the market correct itself, which it's, which it's done, this is kind of like beating a dead horse in terms of saying, you know, we're going to write some of these regulations in the law, give ourselves a pat on the back, saying that, hey, we did something to help the housing market, when in reality we've either done nothing or we've made the situation worse by removing the flexibility that lenders have when making credit decisions. Mortgage brokers and servicers are covered under the new agency created by the FinRed law, the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Board. Uh, the board will have an unprecedented startup budget of some $500 million and plenary authority to regulate any practice deemed unfair, deceptive, or abusive. What effect do you knew, uh, will the new agency have, especially given its broad powers and massive budget? Well, I think that there's going to be more regulations in the future, obviously. I mean, it's been estimated that over 200 regulations are going to be written as a right. result of this new law. But in, in one sense, it's simply a continuation of the same because the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is actually... Uh, simply a spin-off of what the Federal Reserve is doing already. So, for instance, the Fed regulates reg uh, the Truth in Lending Act in Regulation Z, and they implement it, and they come up with regulations under the Truth in Lending Act. And so the Fed is already doing many of the things that the bill uh, suggests the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau will be doing, except now instead of it being... Uh, the Federal Reserve writing and implementing the regulations, it'll be this Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, number one. And, and, and secondly, it, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is going to be housed at the Fed, so simply it's, it, it's, like, it's like a parent company spinning off a subsidiary is, is really what it is. So the Fed, instead of being the parent company writing all the regulations, now the Fed is the parent company spinning off its subsidiary, being a you know this consumer financial protection bureau, so I think it's really simply going to be a continuation of of, of the same in many respects, uh, except with the caveat that there's going to be more regulations written as a result of this new law. So you don't think there's going to be a qualitative difference in the type of regulatory approach uh, with this new bureau? That I mean, they're they're designed exclusively to protect consumers. They're not concerned with safety and soundness you know, of banks, uh, which would be, of course, the Fed uh, orientation. They're uh, concerned solely with uh, protecting consumers from sharp financial practices. You don't think that will make a qualitative difference? It could potentially make a qualitative difference, but you have to remember that the Fed had the authority to regulate subprime mortgage lending back in 1994. So Congress gave regulators the authority to do this as part of some of the laws that were written, you know, almost 15, well, over 15 years ago, 
the Fed did not exercise the authority to do so. So really it boils down to the quality of, of, of the people, the quality of the regulators that are going to be writing these regulations in, in terms of what kind of regulations we see moving forward. I mean, I, I would think that it should have a qualitative difference, but it really boils down to people. I mean, these are people just like you and I, and they may or may not have business experience. They may or may not have experience in the industry. And, and, and so the perspective they bring to the regulation writing process is really going to have a lot to do with the types of regulations we're going to see moving forward. Okay, let's shift to uh, what's going on in the, in the market that, uh, that you're in every day. Uh, new home sales uh, were down in uh, May and uh, June over last year's uh, tepid numbers. We've seen a couple of spikes associated with the first-time uh, home buyer credit um, uh, on existing home sales earlier in the year. What do you think it will take to spur demand again for new homes? Jobs. I mean, if there's one answer to this whole crisis. It's it's the, uh, the, the there's two there's two major problems right now that are afflicting the housing industry. The number one problem is the employment situation. I mean, if people are not employed, they don't have any income coming in. It doesn't matter how much you lower their mortgage payment, they're not going to be able to afford the payment because there's nothing coming in. And so, what we need to do is the economic situation really needs to change before the housing market can really improve. Again, because if people don't have jobs, they can't afford the mortgage payment, no matter how low you subsidize that mortgage payment, too. So that's the first problem that I think really needs to be addressed in order for the housing market to turn around. The second, and perhaps the longest-running issue here, even before the jobs market tumbled, was the negative equity problem. And especially in some of the hardest-hit markets in the country, like, for instance, Nevada and Arizona, Florida, Michigan, these states, you know, the in excess of 40% of the homeowners with a mortgage in those states have negative equity. And so unless something is done to address the negative equity problem, you know, it doesn't make sense for for them oftentimes to, to, to keep the mortgage, especially if they are living in a state where they have anti-deficiency statutes. So, for instance, if I live in the state of California or Arizona where there's a you know, there's a huge negative equity problem, there is really no repercussion for me to walk away right. from, from making my, my mortgage payments. Because let's say that the home is worth 300000 and the mortgage is 400000 I'm $100,000 negative equity. Where am I ever going to get the money to pay back that 100000 And if I walk away, the lender cannot pursue me for a deficiency judgment uh, if I use the money to, to purchase the home. And so what we're seeing now, Sam, more than anything else, are strategic defaults where, you know, most of the people who have lost their job have already lost their job, and most of the people who, you know, simply could not afford the mortgage have pretty much already gone into foreclosure. What we're seeing an increase right now is in strategic defaults where you have homeowners saying, hey, my home's 25, 30, 40 percent negative equity. There's no way I'm going to recover this cash. There's no repercussions if I walk away. So what if there's a hit on my credit? It might last for several years, but I, I save myself 100000 200000 whatever the case may be, if I just walk away from that home. And that's what we're seeing in some of these hardest-hit markets. Uh, even, in the, uh, even in the non-recourse states, uh, do you think uh, we'll see a, a spread of strategic default? 
I think that as people realize there's no quick fix to the housing problem, more and more people are going to be giving this consideration. I mean, it's like a financial decision, just like any other financial decision you'd make. Uh, the past couple of years, we've been some people have been more optimistic than others in terms of housing price recovery. Um, although I do think there are, is going to be a housing price recovery, uh, it's not going to be to the extent that would be required to get these people from out from under a negative equity situation. So I think that more people are going to be considering this uh, specifically in those non-recourse states. The uh, the federal government has uh, been at the issue for close to a couple of years now with uh, various rollout of uh, programs designed to uh, redress the rising uh, number of foreclosure. Uh, the latest HAMP uh, data, though, is pretty grim, uh, about 400,000, slightly under, uh, permanent modifications. Uh, this is out of 1.7 million HAMP-eligible uh, borrowers and more than 5.7 million uh, that are 60-plus days uh, delinquent. Uh, many or most of the 1. Point, roughly 3 million trial modifications are likely to fail, uh, again, uh, because of other uh, current economic realities. Why has uh, the HAMP program, among others, uh, failed to deliver on its promise to uh, address the foreclosure crisis? I think that's really due to a couple of factors. Number one, the HAMP program does nothing to really address the borrower's total debt-to-income ratio. For instance, you can write down the borrower's mortgage payment to, say, 38 or 40 or whatever percentage of their income you, you want to take. You know, take a number out of thin air. Let's just say the number is 30%. You know, so let's say that you write down the borrower's mortgage payment to 30% of their income. Well, what about the other debts that they have, the credit cards and the car loans and all the other debts? HAMP does really nothing to address the borrower's total debt-to-income ratio other than suggest that these borrowers should go into some type of a credit counseling program in order to be eligible for the HAMP program. So really what we need to see is, number one, a, a greater focus on the borrower's overall financial situation, not just the mortgage payment in relation to their income. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, when you go through bankruptcy, the bankruptcy judge needs to reaffirm the mortgage based on your ability to, to pay that um, moving forward. And, and, and there's no such mechanism in the HAMP program where it's, it, it, it's addressing the affordability of the borrower's overall financial situation. What is the tenability of this borrower's overall financial situation, and are they likely to default moving forward? So that's I think one of the, the major problems with HAMP is it does nothing to, you know, go through the process that a bankruptcy judge would go through, for instance, when reaffirming somebody's mortgage through bankruptcy. The, the second problem I, I see is a lack of addressing this issue of negative equity. I mean, HAMP does nothing to require lenders to reduce the principal that is owed on these loans. So no matter what you do with the borrower's mortgage payment, if they're still... 20%, 30%, 40% negative equity, whatever the case may be, they still have an incentive to default if we're talking about these strategic defaults. And in the situations that are not strategic defaults, but simply are situations where the borrower is in a bad financial situation, this is where you have the other reality that we talked about earlier with regard to the employment. I mean, if 
somebody doesn't have income coming in, no matter what you reduce the mortgage payment to, it's not going to impact them positively, you know, moving forward because they simply have no money coming in. So, so these are the three major problems or hurdles that I see with, with the HAMP program. Well, let's talk about the bankruptcy option or solution then, because it seems like using Chapter 13 of the Bankruptcy Code uh, might address several of those uh, problems identified uh, with the HAMP program. It, it is a mandatory program. The judge would modify uh, the home mortgage to reduce the principal down to the fair market value of the home. The Chapter 13 process takes into account the debtor's income stream. It takes into account the debtor's ability to service other uh, pre-existing debt. Uh, And it does it without any uh, taxpayer dollars. Uh, It's just using the existing Chapter 13 bankruptcy structure that already exists. Uh, What about that? Congress uh, had the opportunity uh, to move in this direction. It wasn't adopted. Should Congress, uh, do you think, uh, reconsider uh, this option, especially given the failure of the voluntary mortgage modification programs? Well, I, I think that it, it's more of a um, worthy of consideration now that some of these other things have, have failed. Uh, but my concern with the whole bankruptcy, uh, including the mortgage and bankruptcy matter, is that you're going to basically increase the cost of financing across the board because of the greater risk that's associated to the lender um, through the bankruptcy process. Like a, bar- a borrower can all of a sudden declare bankruptcy and reduce the principal that they owe on the mortgage, and the lender really has nothing to say about that, so that, therefore it's going to increase the cost of financing. However, if we build in some protections, like for instance, under the new financial reform law, they have a category of mortgages known as qualified mortgages. So if there would be a certain carve-out in the law to protect what, what, we, what we're going to call qualified mortgages from being modified through bankruptcy, then it wouldn't really increase the financing costs across the board for consumers. It would simply increase the financing costs for those higher-risk mortgages, the mortgages that are really likely to default in, you know, in, in, in the first place, that are more likely to default. So I think that the idea of including the mortgage in, in, in bankruptcy could be a very plausible one as long as there are some protections that are in place to ensure that the cost of financing does not go up for all consumers across the board, even those consumers that are unlikely to go through the bankruptcy process. I I wonder if this option um, may become even more appealing, perhaps, than it's uh, been to Congress, if uh, we have another wave coming. And I'm thinking particularly here of the possible price shocks that some have uh, predicted from the uh, resets and recasting of option arms and other exotic products that are due to hit, according to some estimates, in 2011, 2012. Uh, Some uh, depict this wave as uh, almost as big as the earlier subprime wave. Do Do you see another wave coming? I really don't, and, and the reason that I, I, I don't feel that there's another huge wave coming, I mean, other than what we've talked about in terms of the strategic defaults, which I think would continue to increase, 
um, I don't see a really a, a, a problem with the option arms recasting simply for the reason that many of them, if not most of them, have already recast. I mean, when you think about it, these loans were originated in 2004, 2005, 2006, for the most part, and most of these loans were originated at such levels where the loan was going to go into a recast potentially even before the five-year time frame is up. And so some of these loans have already gone into recast because of the fact that the initial monthly payment on the loan was so low that it would have caused the loan to recast, say, in years three or four of the loan as opposed to waiting till year five. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is the interest rates on these option arms are, for the most part, very low compared to where they were several years ago because these are adjustable rate mortgages. And so the interest rates on these loans have gone down significantly in relation to where they were, say, when, at the time that they were originated. So, for instance, you might have an option arm right now where your fully indexed interest rate might be hovering around 3% or, in, in some cases, 4%. And so if you're recasting a loan at 4% and amortizing that over time, it's a lot less likely to default than if you were recasting it at, say, 7 or 8% which is what the fully indexed rate might have been if this loan was going to recast, say, three or four years ago. So the decline in interest rates, number one, and number two, the fact that many of these loans have already recast, I think is somewhat removing the risk that we're going to see another huge wave of defaults specifically due to option arm recasts. Now, again, I, I, I'm, I'm conditioning that or qualifying that by saying that I, that I, I do think that there are foreclosure uh, wave is likely to continue, especially with regard to some of the strategic defaults, but I simply don't see the option arms being the trigger to cause that to happen. Okay. So what's your prediction? A year from now, we're having this uh, conversation. What is the state of the housing market uh, in terms of uh, interest rates and affordability uh, for, for products, for, for buyers? And, and what's the state of the foreclosure landscape one year from now? Well, I mean, I, I want to qualify that by saying that uh, obviously nobody has a crystal ball, so my guess is just probably as good as anyone else who's observing the housing market. But the, from the data that I'm seeing, Sam, there, there's a, a few things that, that I, I think are going to happen. Number one, I, I really think that interest rates are going to go higher for two reasons. Number one, they're simply very low right now, any lower. relatively speaking. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine them going any lower, especially when you factor in the fact that, you know, we, we've got these trillion-dollar government deficits and the European uh, sovereign debt crisis. I mean, we're going to be looking internally here instead of looking overseas to Europe just in a short while. I mean, when you think about it, the stock market changed gears uh, tremendously, I mean, very quickly, from the Lehman Brothers scare of, the fall of 2008 until we're starting to bounce off its lows in 2009. So market sentiment is very fickle. It can change in an instant. And what we're seeing right now is the reason why rates are so low currently is the market is fearful of the sovereign debt crisis in Europe. But pretty soon, who knows, maybe the market emotion and sentiment is going to turn and focus on the U.S. fiscal situation where our debt-to-GDP ratio is approaching 80% by many estimates here in the next few years. And, and, and so when you think about it, the interest rate situation is likely to get much worse in the future than it is today. And so 
it, it's arguably foreseeable that rates are going to be a lot higher moving forward than they are today. So if you're sitting on the sidelines, if you have clients that are sitting on the sidelines waiting, you know, for rates to get lower, it's simply not likely to happen. And, in fact, rates are likely to go higher, not only for that reason, but also with regard to some of the um, the things contained in the financial reform bill. The, the lenders in the future are going to be required to retain at least 5% interest in the loans that they originate. And so this means that some of the interest rate risk, some of the credit risk, cannot be offloaded to the secondary market like it has been in the past on many of the um, non-traditional types of mortgages. So anything that's not, say, a traditional 30-year fixed is likely to have a higher interest rate in the future because of this risk retention requirement that's contained in the new law. Mm-hmm. And so these are really the, the two main reasons why we see interest rates going higher. And as far as the housing market, this is really going to be dependent on the local marketplace. I mean, there are some areas of the country that arguably have already bottomed out, um, you know, based on some of the data and the statistics. Other areas of the country are not likely to to improve until the employment situation changes. For instance, in Michigan, we're looking at a 13 to 14% unemployment rate here in right. the state, and the population is shrinking. And so when you have less population for the same amount of real estate, obviously prices are going to continue to come down, if not stagnate. And so the situation here in Michigan, I don't think, is likely to improve no matter what the government does because of the housing and uh, the population and the um, the employment situation. On the other hand, you take a place like North Dakota that has hardly seen any decline in housing prices, and their unemployment rate is less than 5%. In fact, last time I checked, I think it was around 3 or 4%. That market is not likely to experience a very high level of foreclosures, defaults, uh, what have you, because of the employment situation in that market is, is very good. So really... Real estate is more or less a local phenomena, and the local market conditions, local employment conditions are going to determine what happens moving forward. Well, with that uh, sober, uh, if not realistic, uh, projection, uh, we'll, uh, we'll have to end it there. We're about out of time for today. I, I want to thank uh, our special guest, uh, Gibran Nicholas, uh, for joining us. Uh, thanks, Gibran. Well, thanks for having me, Sam. It's been a pleasure. And we thank our audience for listening. You can hear or download nearly 90 podcasts from our homepage at www.abi.org. Until next time, this is Sam Giordano saying good day.